When you come to Tokyo, it doesn't take much time before you can realize how dense and immense the city is. In fact, uh, the city of Tokyo is actually the heart of the largest metropolis of the world with 38 million population. And most of these people do not know Christ. And so here you see the largest concentration of the unreached people group of the world. Living in this city, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the size and the speed. It's very easy to feel small by yourself and ask yourself, what in the world can I do here? We see in the book of Jonah that God had a great compassion on the city of Nineveh with 120,000 people who are said to be ignorant about which way is left and which way is right spiritually. And uh, much like that here in Tokyo, this place is filled with just millions of people continuing their life day to day without knowing that they've been made to find life as they come to know this Creator. We believe that it is God Himself who is zealous to be glorified in the changed lives of millions of Japanese people, and that is why we're here. So as we prayed for Tokyo, we were led to the conviction that whatever we do, we have to do it in a way that is multiplication-minded because this city is simply unreachable by a limited number of professionals. We have to do ministry in a way that is simple enough for those trained lay people doing a way that has good content, good substance needed for discipleship and multiplication. Something else that we've noticed about this city is that while it's really dense, if you look closely enough, there are a lot of small spaces that people can gather. It can be restaurants, it can be cafes, it can be homes. And uh, we thought, hey, you know, uh, for these lay people to be able to do ministry, it has to be simple, it has to be small. God has already filled this city with those small spaces where people can meet. Christians can get together having a good, just meaningful uh, fellowship, putting the Bible in their center and uh, kind of digging into the scriptural truth as a group. And if that type of gospel community that is really enjoying the life of Christ multiply, that would be a way where the city can eventually be filled with the knowledge of Christ. A lot of the ministry that I'm involved in happens right here in our house. Being a mom of four kids keeps me pretty busy. I ask the Lord that He would bring the work here to my home where I am, and He has. Now we have our church meeting in our living room every week. A lot of exciting things happen right here on this street in front of our house. The kids all have gone to the school right behind me. Kaya still goes there. He's in fifth grade. And so a lot of the local kids who go to that school, they end up coming to our house. We're so happy that we can be part of this community. So please pray for an extraordinary faith and wisdom as we as a team continue to shepherd this movement. May the Japanese come to know the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus for the glory of God. Hello. Okay. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Shige Nakazawa, and uh, I know it's a really hard name for you to remember. One way to uh, kind of help people remember is she, like girl, gay, like happy people, and Shige, 
Okay, she gay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, I am, uh, if Corey can have a uh, uh, next slide, uh, just with uh, Reach Global, which is an international mission arm of the Evangelical Free Church of America. E-Free, you might have heard of before. Uh, many churches in the central uh, Midwest uh, of the United States. Uh, and um, we serve in Tokyo. Next slide, please. I'm going to talk about just quickly about my family. You saw some, uh, some of the... Um, our family member's wife, uh, Luann, uh, she's from Iowa. That's my connection because I'm from Tokyo. Uh, I was born and raised, and what on earth am I doing here? It's like, it's because of my wife and I'm married to uh, Iowa, basically. And we have four children. And uh, uh, Pastor Trevor talked about uh, Kathy Ballard and uh, well, con how it's connected here. It's just our youngest, KJ, who is in seventh grade. So that video has been two years old already. <clears throat> but the, he was... He's been in football, uh, and uh, we had a game in Carroll, uh, and uh, Kathy Ballard was sitting right, like, uh, you know, right behind us and stuff, and we started having conversation, like we usually do in, in most football games and stuff. You know, it's a great option to get to know people, you know. And uh, Kathy had this uh, business card. Uh, we talked about we're missionaries, and, oh, if you're a missionary, you should contact our church, <laughs> she says. And uh, she pulled out this uh, business card, has a Trevor's name on it, and, and that's a good sign. The church members are carrying the business card of church, and she's giving out the people and stuff, and that tells me something good about you guys. You know, it's a good church here. Um, next slide, please. Um, and uh, just in Japan, um, you heard about our country. Um, you know, we're in Tokyo. And next slide, I'm going to just talk a little bit about our country. And um, just Japan is a really spiritually lost nation. That's what I want to say. Next slide, Corey, if I can. There you go. Thank you. Um, did you know that evangelical believers out of the 127 po million population, which is about um, less than half of the United States, I guess, it's a it, very populous you know, country, even though it's a small country, uh, but only a quarter of a percent in an evangelical church-going worshiper are Christians. And so if you can imagine a whole large room of about maybe 400 people, you find maybe one person going to church and a believer. And that's the reality we're facing. And, and that makes our national, Japanese people the second largest unreached people groups of the world. Did you know that? Most people probably wouldn't have thought about it. Next slide, please. And uh, you saw the video, the reality uh, of uh, my city, uh, where I grew up uh, and where we live and work. Uh, he has called us to ministry. This is the kind of reality that you see when you come to Tokyo. And here's a question, just for the sake of... <clears throat> This time right here, if you, I would invite, invite you to think with me just for a second. What would you do if God calls you to, 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 to just lift the name of Jesus up and for Jesus' his name to be known, that people come to him and, and be saved? What would you do if God calls you to this city? Uh, yeah. Well, well, we thought we were just praying for this city, and for quite a long time, we still continue to do, obviously, but through the prayer time, God really led us to this one question. That is, how can we see in central Tokyo, Corey, go ahead and if you can click, there you go, um, and keep clicking. Um, how can we see in central Tokyo a church multiplication? And uh, we talk about church planting. I'm a church planter, but we wanna, what we want to see is more than just one or two churches planted. It's great, but we need to see church multiplication. Because look, this reality, how many people? 
38 million people in my city uh, needing to be reached. Most of them are non-believer, unsaved, uh, heading to Christless eternity. What would you do? We need to see church multiplication. And that means it cannot be done simply on the hands or the shoulder of just the limited professionals, if you will, vocational ministers like ourselves. We need to mobilize lay people. You know, in order for lay people to be able to do that, we need to keep it simple and small. But doesn't mean that simple and small doesn't mean that it has to be shallow. It has to have substantial contents. And so needed for discipleship and multiplication. And yet, finally also, that has to be culturally appropriate in the cultural soil of Tokyo, Japan. And that became the question. The prayer became a question. So um, um, I'm just trying to keep my time here. Oh, I got so okay. Eight more minutes. <laughs> um, so all this prayer and a process kind of led us to this idea of a seeing small, lay-led churches that can meet in homes or even cafes in downtown Tokyo. Now, <clears throat> I want you to keep in mind that we're in a very different context operating in Japan. If we can have a building like this, it's awesome. But you know how much that will cost in Tokyo? <laughs> I don't have that kind of money. Um, and if you, even if you did have that kind of money, uh, maybe you can have maybe up to 200 people, most successful church in Tokyo. They, people do that. But um, that's probably the cap. We, need, we have more people that need to be reached for, for Christ. So <clears throat> this lay-led small church ministry, even though it's hard because it takes time to develop lay leaders, but once it's done in a way that is reproducible, and multipliable with good contents, people growing as disciples, it has a greater potential. That's how we were led uh, to, to do ministry in Tokyo. Um, so 2016 November, uh, we got together, first uh, group. And then next slide, please. In about a year, uh, this group uh, grew to about from 10 to 20 people. And what would you say the number 20 people? Is that too few or too, small, too big? I, we said too big. Because can you share your life uh, with 19 other people well? Uh, maybe in American context, maybe so. But in the Japanese context, people are reserved, a lot more quiet. It needs to have a lot smaller group of people. And can you share your Bible insight, you know, contribute to Bible study meaningfully? No, 20 was too big. So uh, next slide, please. We were able to commission some of these core members of our first church plant to start a second church plant. So now we have two small churches. Next slide, please. Now that we have two small churches, we brought them together for a larger uh, gathering, celebration, joint worship, to give ourselves more momentum, fellowship, and communion, and training, teaching, uh, to get this movement going. Uh, <clears throat> and next slide, please. And a little bit afterwards, we were able to commission still other uh, group of people from our first church plant to start a third small church. Now we are a network of three uh, small churches connected together. So here is a vision that we have been given. <clears throat> this is a view uh, from one of the towers in Tokyo. <clears throat> but we want to see Tokyo permeated with the life of Christ through these people who are small maybe, but yet genuinely enjoying the life of Christ. They are just uh, loving to know Jesus and worshiping him, loving one another, encouraging one another. Um, 
all led by lay, lay people. And so these are, we call small church. But yet, of course, these small churches are lay-led, so in other words, it can be weak and fragile a little bit, so we need more support system. So what we have uh, is celebration, like I mentioned, you know, we bring those people together for uh, larger worship, encouragement, and we have servant leadership team that's kind of made out of uh, full-time people like us. Um, and so, you know, full-time ministers like us don't do the ministry, you know, everything, we're, but rather we're there to uh, coach and train um, the small church leaders. Uh, just like Ephesians 4 talks about, those people are supposed to just to train those people, equip those people for the work of ministry. And finally, we have training modules um, to provide the kind of training and education that, you know, week-to-week -week small church rhythm, though it's really good and substantial, may be, but not readily able to provide. And, but none of those things are the main thing. The main thing is for each one of these small churches, uh, one more click, Corey, there you go. Uh, so one of these, uh, all of the small churches to be strengthened and continue multiplying healthily. And this is our vision. And the next slide, please. Um, just uh, the kind of thing that we like to see more and more. This is one of the baptism ceremonies that, that we've had. This is a, uh, um, if you can see, second generation baptism at the third church plant. What happened was this guy named Rahul on the right, who was saved 2018, he baptized at this time, 2019, baptized this guy named Han on the left-hand side. See what I mean? So somebody comes to Christ and... He's now baptizing next generation of believer. And uh, this is the kind of thing we like to see more and more. Next slide, please, finally. Uh, this is one of the small churches that I have been <clears throat> mainly shepherding, but transitioned out because now we're in home assignment here in the United States. But before we moved out uh, back in July, uh, we were able to see these two Japanese, we call them salary men, like uh, businessmen, I guess how you say it, but corporate people, very busy. Uh, Tokyo Central uh, business people, super busy people, uh, very tired. And uh, they're called, you know, one of the hardest people groups to be reached. But we have these two, two guys, lay leaders, uh, kind of leading a small church. And now I get to kind of uh, coach them and assist them from distance. And so it's been a fun situation. Um, just say, uh, next slide, please. Um, you know this verse, uh, Matthew 16, 18, is just really, are, um, really a key encouragement for me. Um, two more minutes. <laughs> um, just, I, I like you to take this away. Um, based on what you just heard me say, oh, a lot of things are happening. Well, in reality, um, if you just remember the fact that in Tokyo, basically 99. 75% unsaved. That is the case in spite of the fact that there have been about 170 years of Protestant mission history in Tokyo, in Japan. And if you look back Catholic evangelism, about 500 years, we have multiple seminaries, multiple versions of the Bible. It's not in that sense like a pioneer, pioneer, uh, unreached people group per se, if you will. But this is still a reality, only 0.525%. One in 400 people is uh, just active Christian. How can that be? Satan is active, uh, and uh, we can really be easily be beat up. Uh, I, we came home back in July so tired and exhausted, feeling like beat up. And, and so, which, so, but 
here, this is the hope that Jesus Christ himself takes this, you know, to build his own church upon this God-given confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter confessed. On this God-given faith, Jesus himself plants his own church, builds his own church, and nothing can thwart that. And that is, that is really my hope um, and the hope that you have, I'm sure, here in Panora. And so this is uh, kind of what I, want, what I have for you. We do have a little table uh, up in the foyer area, just a little sign-up sheet to receive a prayer update. We do covet uh, prayer uh, from people who are so grateful that Panora uh, Faith Bible Church is taking us up for additional financial ministry support. Oh. <laughs> I try to be good with my time, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I do invite uh, for you to just sign up if you will. Thank you so much. Come to church with heavy burdens. And I think if we were to look around the congregation, if we were to be honest with ourselves, if I were to ask a question to all of us, Sometimes it would appear in what is going on in our world that there is a loss of hope or perhaps that God has forgotten his promises. It doesn't take long to look at the news. It doesn't take long to what's going on, not only locally but around our world, to wonder where is God and perhaps has he abandoned us? Can we trust in what he has said? Will he do what he promises? And interestingly enough, we're going to be going through the book of Ezra. And part of the reason that I love this book is, as we look to it, in the Old Testament, while all of the books are connected, what we discover with Ezra is its fingers are essentially everywhere. The purpose of this is to help us to see God's plan, God's sovereignty, and God's promises, that he will not forget the people of God, that he will restore them to himself, that he will provide for them. But also, as we travel to the later part of the book, we discover that in that, the people of God are led or called to authentic worship, as well as obeying of the Torah, or the law of God. Recognize that Ezra is written in the setting of the Old Testament. Now, while Jesus has eternally existed, Jesus, as we know him, has not come onto the scene yet. But what we're going to see as we travel through this book is God's continued heart and desire to bring about restoration to the people of God, even though the people of God tend to be wishy-washy with their faith. And so what I'd like to do is I want to ask you, and I don't need you to raise your hands, but have any of you in your walk with Jesus Christ come to a point where you have questioned God's plan, questioned God's promises. Perhaps you've gone through a tragedy. Perhaps there's been a difficulty in your life. Perhaps the dreams that you have have not come to fruition or an alternate plan has been there and you're wondering where is God? What I want to throw out to us this morning is a very simple question and that is this. When there appears to be no hope, does God keep his promises? And to lay the context for you, the reason that I love the book of Ezra is that it is a historical narrative about things that occurred with the people of God some 2,600 years ago. To lay the context to help us understand Ezra and what occurs in Ezra has been known as what 
essentially scholars or pastors will say, the second exodus. What are we talking about here? Interestingly enough, I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, and we're going to look at Ezra. But before we do, what I want to let you know is that it is seamless between the conclusion of 2 Chronicles and the book of Ezra. Where the book of 2 Chronicles leaves off, Ezra picks up. And so its fingers are tied into the history of God's people. Now why is this important? Before we dive into the scripture, I need to lay context of you on what's going on with the people of God. What we have seen is, is over the time Solomon has built his temple, people have begun to worship and enjoy God's presence. However, a prophet by the name of Isaiah has said that there will come a time when the people of God will go wayward, and because of that, God will bring them to essentially ruin. Interestingly enough, that prophecy occurs, and people wonder if Isaiah is even real. They wonder if he's even true. Because not only a day goes by, but a week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, and then centuries go by. But sure enough, as God has said in his word, the people of God see their world torn apart. Interestingly enough, an individual with the Babylonian armies by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the temple of God and disperses the people of God for his kingdom's sake. And a day goes by. And a month goes by. And a year goes by. And a decade goes by. And 70 years go by. And the heart of God and the worship of God has begun to become scattered. Friends, it would be as if we were scattered and we were not able to worship as we do for 70 years. And what I want to ask is simply this. What is the heart of your worship? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the building? Is it the facility? Is it the lights? Is it the show? And should God, in his sovereignty, as he has done with the people of God, choose to disperse his church in a manner to regenerate his church? Would your heart be able to withstand the disaster? Now, the purpose of Ezra is simply this. Ezra is the beginning of new hope. What we find in the book of Ezra is, as God has prophesied, Nebuchadnezzar has come and led the people of God to ruin. But also in the book of Jeremiah, he says, be careful, Nebuchadnezzar, because someone greater than you will come and lead you to ruin. And sure enough, as God prophesies, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian army comes and takes over the Babylonian army. And now Medo-Persia and King Cyrus is the ruler of the world. But interestingly enough, as we dive into the text of Isaiah, we recognize that while the world thinks that the high leaders, Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus, are moving and changing and dispersing the people of God, God's sovereign hand is the one that is directing all. 
And this is where we pick up. Second Chronicles concludes. Ezra begins. If you'd be kind enough, turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. We're going to be looking particularly at the first 11 verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build the temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you may be, or may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem." And the people of any place, when survivors may know, be living, are now to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Medathrath, the treasurer who counted them, to Shezbazar. And for a minute, I'm just going to say a sense of humor. When I read that, I think of Mork and Mindy when Mork says... Shazbat. It just takes my brain there, okay? Shezbazar, or Shazbat, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezbazar, Shazbat, brought all these along with the exiles, when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Friends, as we look at the beginning of the book of Ezra, there is so much that is going on, and the context of Ezra has its fingers and its hands throughout the entirety of the Old as well as the New Testament. What you have to recognize is the people of God had been dispersed, as the prophet Isaiah had said, under Nebuchadnezzar. Their temple had been destroyed. Their land had been taken. They had been moved from where they lived. They had been placed, essentially, in exile. But the beauty of the book of Ezra is that it is essentially the second return to the promised land. And interestingly enough, by a king, the name of Cyrus, who feels and thinks that he is the one that is doing things, God's sovereign hand uses him to proclaim a decree that the people of God can return to their land and rebuild the temple. Think about this for a minute. The known world of the day has been turned upside down. Nebuchadnezzar has come and has destroyed the people of God through the Babylonian army, utilized it and taken all of the articles, all of the temple, all of the acts of worship of the people of God to essentially his palace 
under his little g, God. Don't miss the magnitude of this, because friends, essentially what goes on there is every aspect of worship, every point that people essentially live, quote unquote, off of on a temporal basis has been removed. And they have been taken from their homeland. I ask lovingly, if that were to occur here, how long could we continue to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ? Because friends, it isn't for a day, it isn't for a week, it isn't for a month. It is, as the prophecy says, for a period of 70 years, almost an entire lifetime. And my question to us is, would we question the goodness of God? Would we question the sovereignty of God? Would we question the joy of God during that time? Or would we remain resolute, trusting indeed that no matter what happens in the world around us, God has made his promises and what he has said will come to fruition. Interestingly enough, as the people of God begin to wonder, God has also, through the prophet of Jeremiah, gone to Nebuchadnezzar and said, you will come to your demise and it will be 70 years. How many people would remember that? How many people would hold on to that? How many people would recognize that God has said and God will do? And interestingly enough, not coincidentally, but providentially, Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed by Cyrus. The first thing that I want you to see as we walk through this in verses 1 through 4 is this, that God uses rulers of the world to accomplish his purpose which is to restore a nation unto himself. The reason that I put nation in quotes is I want to essentially speak theologically not only to the physical nation of Israel, but also the nation, spiritually speaking, of God's people of which we are part of. And recognize that God has promised and God has planned to bring about a restoration of his people period, despite what goes on in the world around us. Why is this important? Friends, I hear so many people who are so concerned about what's going on in the world. And to be honest with you, I will say I am too. But what I'm going to tell you is this, that we should not be concerned about what's going on in the world when things either get better or look more Christian, or they get worse and look less Christian. Because God has promised to bring about his church and redeem and restore his people despite what temporally the world may look like. Place yourself in the context of the people of God in this time. Watching an army advance, destroying your place of worship, removing you from your home, and placing you essentially in a desire to purge you of your belief. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to conquer and divide and separate essentially those whom he conquered and then assimilate them into quote unquote his manner of belief or practice. The difference that Cyrus has 
is, strategically speaking, number one, God speaks to him. But number two, he believes that if he allows the people of God to go back and worship their God, it will be good for them and for him as he establishes his reign. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because worldly, we're talking politics. But don't ever forget that spiritually, God's hand is the one that is leading all of these events. And so friends, as politics twist and turn and ebb and flow and leaders come and go and change and direction moves more Christian or less Christian, don't ever think that God is either more in control or less in control. He is always in control. God uses the world as the world to accomplish his purpose, which is to restore a nation to himself. Interestingly enough, we read, obviously, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. I'm going to go quickly to this. What is the word that's spoken by Jeremiah? Essentially, Jeremiah 25, 12, 11, I'm going to give some context, um, says this. I'll start, actually, I'll go, I'll go to 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of, Babylon, of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. That's the prophecy. That's what's been said. God has promised and God has said, yet the Babylonian army comes and destroys the people of God, destroys the temple, moves the people of God out, and 70 years go by. But here is God's word. And the reason that I'm putting emphasis on this is, friends, I think we're good in being resolute when things don't go our way for a day, for a week, for a month, maybe for a year. Not going to go too political here, but maybe for four years or eight. But 70? Would we remember the promise of God? Would we hold on to the promise of God? Would we trust the promise of God? He said he will do it. Or would we begin to doubt and wonder and say, God, are you there? Are you real? Can we really trust in you? And sure enough, as we flip back to the start of Ezra, which leads right after Chronicles, again, this is why I love this book. Its hands just go through the Old Testament, and in a moment, you'll see how it goes into the new. God's word comes true. And so interestingly enough, think about this for a minute. Cyrus, King Cyrus, Interesting guy. Why Cyrus? Why not Joe? Why not Bill? Why not Fred? Why King Cyrus? Friends, God's hand is sovereignly designing all of this to demonstrate that as the world twists and turns, you, we can trust in the promises that God has given. Why Cyrus? Friends, in Isaiah 44, 28, the prophet before anything is on the scene, says this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. 
What are you talking about? What do you mean? The temple's here. All is well. Where, where are you going? Who's Cyrus? Dude, you're crazy. Interesting enough, think about this for a minute. The statement made by Isaiah, this gives context, okay? About Cyrus, King Cyrus, is approximately 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Think about that for a minute. Cyrus isn't around. Cyrus isn't a leader. Cyrus isn't a king. Medo-Persia doesn't even exist. He's not even anywhere, and the temple still stands. What are you talking about? And then God says, here's what I'm going to tell you, people of God. In your waywardness, you will become distraught because you have not followed my word and someone will lead you astray. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army comes in and conquers the people of God. And the great temple of Solomon is destroyed. And their place of worship and their identity has been wrecked. And 70 years go by. But God says, yep. But 150 years, even before Cyrus was around... He's going to come, he's going to become king, and he's going to be the one that restores the temple. Think about this for a minute. And what God is promising. It all flows together. And God's promises through the prophets reign true. What I love is it continues on, and it says, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah. Interestingly enough, Cyrus has been convicted through the prophecy that he has read and is now bringing the people of God back to their homeland. It's the second exodus. The people who have been essentially taken from their homes are now allowed to return to the land of promise and to begin rebuilding the temple. Think about that for a minute. God is always working. God is always moving. God's promises always ring true. And then we continue... And not only do we see that God uses rulers of the world to accomplish his purpose, which is to restore a nation to himself, but in verses 5 through 6, we see that God has promised, God has promised to continue to be faithful to bring his people back to the land of promise. And I've put land of promise in quotes. Because we see two things going on in this context, in this point. In the day of the book of Ezra, they're speaking to back to the land, meaning back to the nation of Israel. We also see through prophecy that God has promised that he will bring his people back to the nation of Israel physically. But we also recognize that spiritually speaking, the land of promise is not the nation, quote unquote, of Israel, but the kingdom of God. And so it all ties together. We look at verses 5 through 6, 
And it says, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose heart God had moved and prepared to go up to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with the articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts in addition to freewill offerings. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this because this will essentially unfold as we look deeper into the book of Ezra. But there are essentially three means or three movements, major movements of the people of God to come back to the land of promise. Zerubbabel will be the one who will lead the first one. Ezra will lead essentially the second. And then another individual will lead the third. And what's important to see as we move through Ezra that as the people of God move back, what happens? They rebuild the temple. And this is a sermon for another day. But the temple isn't as great as the one was before. It's not as big. It's not as great. It's not as grand. It doesn't have lights. It doesn't have air conditioning. And so the people of God are so depressed because God has not answered their prayers. Come on, people. God has brought you out of exile and redeemed you back. And you're upset that the temple isn't as grand and yet his promises have come true? A sermon for another day, friends, but so often do we look to the temporal to see if God is real and we forget that we need to look to the spiritual and the promises of God to know that he is real. God has promised to continue to be faithful and bring his people back to the land of promise. And then what I love about this is we get into verses 7 through 11. And sometimes I've often wondered about this. It says, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, had placed them in the temple of his God. Okay? Great. That's good to know. It's important. Hey, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar has taken them. Now he's bringing the articles back. But then he goes in and lists them. Quantification. Value. Record system, insurance purposes, right? This is something that hit me. And as we look at this, I think that God is faithful to redeem and preserve his people and his possessions for his honor and his glory. What do I mean by this? He doesn't forget. He knows what is there. He knows his possessions. He knows what Nebuchadnezzar has taken. And those articles that have been out of the temple for 70 years could be lost, displaced, destroyed. And what I love about this is often we think, well, what's the purpose? And I choose to believe, you may not agree with me, but that God is a God of detail. God is a God of promise. And oftentimes we may feel that we are just one in a web of many. And how can God care about us? And lovely what I want to tell you is this. If he knows and he can care for a bowl of silver or a jar of gold and keep it so that it is restored after 70 years being in exile, he knows and cares for you. Because you are his and his promises reign true. And so friends, do not ever let the enemy think 
or make you think that you are just not known. He cares for you. He cares for your possessions. He cares for his possessions. And the reason is, it's because they are his. You are his. He will not leave you nor forsake you, even if you are in exile, as we see, be a Nebuchadnezzar, and you are in a temple where you don't have a home. That's physical and that's spiritual. And friends, why I love this book is because as we tie to it, we see God's loving and sovereign hand holding and guiding and directing and redeeming his church time and time and time again. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shez Bazaar, I won't do the Mork and Mindy thing, brought all of these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Restoration, detail, joy, a new hope. God is faithful to preserve him, to redeem and preserve his people with his possessions for his honor and his glory. But interestingly enough, as we stop here in the text of Ezra and we look and we're like, wow, God is bringing the people of God back. God is restoring the temple again. God also calls people to an awe of reverence and worship. And friends, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is simply this. We may never be, quote unquote, physically exiled. We might be exiled. I don't know. But in your life, spiritually speaking, when the desert sands come, when the difficulties are there, when God appears to be distant or you appear to be in exile, my question lovingly to you is this. Will you look to the temporal to determine your fate or will you look to the word of God and the promises that are given to override the temporal and realize that no matter what goes on, God has promised to redeem his church and he has promised to keep and preserve you, a believer in Christ, because the Holy Spirit is living and acting in you. And I lead to the next part which is the people of God come back and the temple is restored and all is well and the story ends. The people of God become wayward again. The people of God turn away from God. And guess what happens? In 70 AD, the Roman army comes once again and destroys the temple and moves the people of God in what is called the Great Diaspora. And the nation of Israel is wiped off the map. And the people of God are dispersed all around the world. And Israel, on a temporal level, and the Jewish people are no more. And friends, this time it isn't 70 years. It's 1,875. After one of the greatest atrocities that the world has ever seen. After the terror of World War II and the Nazi persecution of the Jewish people, on May 14, 1948, the United Nations and the head of the Jewish agency, David Ben-Gurion, declared Israel a sovereign nation 
and Jerusalem as its capital. As prophesied in Isaiah 11, 2,600, 700 years before it occurred. Friends, God is always working to redeem his people. God will redeem his people, and God will build his church, despite what goes on around us. And why I love this book is as you look at how it works, as you look at how it works historically, as you look at how it works prophetically, you see the hand of our sovereign God working it all and saying, I've got this, and you are mine, and I will redeem you. And so what I want to encourage you with is we've looked at this question, when there appears to be no hope, does God keep his promises? We can see through this text in Ezra that God uses rulers of the world to accomplish his purpose, which is to restore a nation to himself. But God has also promised to continue to be faithful to bring his people back to the land of promise. And also, God is faithful to redeem and preserve. Don't ever forget this. And preserve his people and his possessions for his honor and his glory and his namesake. Essentially summarizing that, this is this. God is faithful to keep his promise to redeem, preserve, and bring his people back to the land of promise. And so this morning, what I want to do is this. This is historically speaking. God has spoken specifically to the people of God for a specific time. But I also want you to see that if God is doing that for his people here, he will continue to do it for his people today. And what I want to ask you is this. Some of you might be feeling that you are in exile. Some of you might be going through something right now that is incredibly challenging. And some of you might be wondering, are the promises of God real? And what I want to do is, is I want to take a moment and I want you to look and see that if God can do it here, he can do it for you and he will do it for you. I don't know what it will look like. I don't know the path that it will take to get you there. But I do know that God has promised to redeem all of us who are in Jesus Christ. And so in this, what I'd like to do is, we're going to play a song in a minute that I personally feel fits with it. And it is a song by Jason Gray called Nothing is Wasted. The point of the song is to remind us that in those moments of brokenness, in those moments where we wonder if God is there, in those moments where we wonder can God do anything, that no matter what occurs, no matter good nor bad, no matter success or failure, no matter life nor too early death, no matter job nor loss of job, whatever it might be, nothing is wasted in the hand of God because he is always working to redeem his people. And so friends, what I want to do is as we play this, you're welcome to listen to the song, you're welcome to read the words, but my prayer is, is that you would take a moment to reflectively look upon your life and remember and realize that God doesn't waste anything for his people. And he is always working to bring about his story of redemption through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's take a listen.
In the hands of our Redeemer, you are working all things to bring fruition for your church and your kingdom. Lord, as we look to the book of Ezra, may it be a reminder indeed of how you continue to restore your people back to yourself. May it also be a reminder, though, that while temporally the world might be awry, while things may not going, be going the way that we think they should, you are always working behind the scenes through your prophecy, through your promise. And Father, just as we've seen these things come to fruition, we also know that you have promised that someday you will come again. And Lord, if you said what was true in Ezra has come true, then what you've said is true about your second coming is true as well. And so, Lord, we wait. We wait with anticipation and hope. And Father, we recognize that at times when we think that there might not be hope, we can confidently say we have hope because we know you keep your promises. And we know that you've promised to redeem us to yourself and that our inheritance is your kingdom. And Father, may that bring joy to our hearts and joy to our lives. May that help us to go out and be salt and light to a world that has no hope. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the maker of heaven and earth. And what you have said is true. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Friends, this is the time that we have our service of Holy Communion. And just a few things for you I'd like to say is you do not have to be a member of our church to partake in communion. We welcome all who have a relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to partake. In a moment, we will reflect and then obviously we'll distribute the elements and we'll partake together.